0: so I'm thankful that we can worship God. I'm thankful for your flexibility this morning, even as things didn't quite work how we planned. Uh, those things are helpful, but they're not necessary for us to be able to worship our God. And so I'm thankful uh, for all who have helped us this morning. Uh, Rama is very blessed to have a wonderful sound staff and musicians and our song leader, Justin. Um, you wouldn't believe how many people I've seen that would have been scrambling in the time leading up to this service with sweat pouring off of them and terrified of what's going to happen And Justin was just as cool as a cucumber, and we just got the hymnals out, and we're so thankful that he's here, and I'm thankful that you're here and sang loudly, because the only rule I have is that you have to sing louder than I do, and I sing loud, so I'm thankful that y'all were flexible this morning to do that. Would you take your copy of God's Word? I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12. 1 Corinthians, chapter 12. We're continuing this morning in our series, The Three Priorities of a Local Church. As I began last week, as I presented to you, I believe that God has given us three priorities as a church and as individual believers. And in these three priorities, if we have these in the right order, everything else falls into place. So all of the things that we think of as being the work of the church, evangelism and missions and discipleship and fellowship and the preaching and teaching of God's word, all of those things will fall into place if we have our priorities rightly in order. I believe our first priority is our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I believe our second priority is our relationship with one another. And I believe our third priority is our relationship with the world around us. And everything that we think of when it comes to the work of the church, if we put all things in order under those three priorities, we will be blessed by God because I believe God has given us those, order, those priorities in that order. It's not an order that I made up on my own. As I showed you last week, I believe uh, Jesus on the night before his crucifixion, he demonstrated that order in his teaching to his disciples the night before his death and also in his high priestly prayer to his Father in heaven. He modeled those three priorities in that order. And if we keep them in that order, I believe God will bless that. But when we get things out of order, if we don't rightly love God through Christ, then we cannot rightly love one another, and therefore we cannot rightly love the world. And so last Sunday, we looked at our first relation, our first priority, our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We saw from John 15 that if we abide in Christ, that is how we bear fruit. And that to abide is not some mystic feeling, but it's actually to let God's words abide in us through the reading of his word and to let our words abide in God through prayer. And when we do that, and out of love, we obey his commands, we will successfully abide in christ and god will bless that and bring forth much fruit that was our first priority for those of you who weren't here last week or as a brief recap for those of you who were this morning we turn our attention to our second priority our relationship with one another for that we turn this morning to one corinthians chapter 12 we'll begin reading in verse 12 down through verse 26 and if you're able whether in body or in spirit would you stand with me for the reading of god's word If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? God of Jesus Christ, would you give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ, so that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened? Help us to know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us. Through Christ our Lord, amen. You may be seated. To rightly understand the second priority, our relationship with one another, and to rightly understand this text, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 26, we need to back up for just a moment and look at verses 1 through 11. We're not going to camp out there. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time going through it, but I want to point out a few things to you. So if you'll lift your eyes up to verses 1 through 11 in your Bible, I want you to see in verse 4, the word translated here in the ESV, varieties. In verse 5, you see that same word again, varieties. And in verse 6, the same word again, varieties. That word translated varieties here in this this translation, the Greek word is the one that gives us our English word, diversity. Diversity. There's lots of discussion about diversity in the church. And when you look around, we see diversity in our church. We see diversity of age. We see diversity of gender. We see diversity of ethnicity. We see diversity of socioeconomic background. We see diversity of occupation. And all, on and on we could go, we have diversity in the church. But is that the diversity that Paul is talking about here, that Paul is emphasizing? Look again at verse 4. He says, varieties of gifts. Diversities of gifts. Verse 5, he says varieties or diversities of service. And in verse 6, he says varieties or diversities of activities. But notice the rest of verse 6. But it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So the emphasis of Paul and the, to the church at Corinth and to us today, he's emphasizing here in these verses a diversity. A diversity of function. A diversity of giftedness. We don't all have the same gift. We don't all play the same part. And he continues in here and he he makes very clear that God is the one who has done this and he's done and given different gifts to different people. So he says in verse 7 to each, in verse 8 to one, later in verse 8 to another, verse 9 to another, verse 10 to another, the end of verse 10 to another, verse 11 to each one individually as he wills. And at the end of verse 11, he uses the word apportions, which is the verb that gives us the same word for varieties or diversities. Why do I tell you all of this? Paul begins this discussion on unity by discussing the diversity of the church. But it's not diversity necessarily in the world's language that we would think of when we hear the word diversity. Even though we have that in our church, and that's a good thing, the emphasis of Scripture is on the diversity of gifts that God has given each believer a gift. That's why he begins chapter 12 here, now concerning spiritual gifts. That's what this entire chapter, chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14, this is a long discussion on spiritual gifts. And so we have here in these first 11 verses a diversity. But then when we get to our main text today, verse 12, he shifts how he uses the word one. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, All the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. In the first 11 verses, Paul says, God has given to one this gift, and he's given to another one this gift, and he's given to that one that gift, and to another that gift. But now he uses the same word one, but he changes the meaning. He talks about the unity. The body is one, it is whole, it is one complete unit even though our body, our physical body has many members, it has many parts, but we have one body. And he says, so it is, and you would expect him to say with the body of Christ, but he doesn't say with the body of Christ. He doesn't say with the church. He says, so it is with Christ because Christ is so closely related to his church. That's why when Saul was on the Damascus road and he had that life changing encounter with the risen Lord and Christ said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He didn't say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the church? He says, why do you persecute me? Because Christ is so closely connected with his church, with the body of Christ. And so Paul says there in verse 12, so it is with Christ." So Paul has spent the first 11 verses of this chapter emphasizing the diversity, the different gifts that God has given to his church. And now he points to the unity. And when we stop and think about that, we realize that that is not a natural thing. This sort of diversity should lead to greater diversity. It should actually lead to division. That's how it works in the world. But in the church, Paul is teaching that there's actually a supernatural unity. Because let's think about it. Step outside the walls of the church and think about what it's like in your day-to-day life. People generally like to be around other people who are like them. People who work for an airline generally like to hang out with the people who work at the airline. Lawyers like to hang out with lawyers. Farmers like to hang out with farmers. Teachers like to hang out with teachers. We generally, it's not always true, but generally, we like to be around people who are just like us, who look like us, like the same things we like, We generally like to be around people like us. So if God has given this kind of diversity to the church, a diversity of gifts, we would think that that might lead to greater division. And Paul is addressing that problem here in the Corinthian church. We'll see that as he goes down through the letters. Some people in the church were saying, well, because I don't have the same gift that you have, then I must be less important. Or actually, you know, if I don't have the gift that you have, I might as well just not be a part of the body. That's what some of the people in Corinth were saying. And that's how some churches act even today. But Paul is teaching us that no, there's a supernatural unity in the church. But how does this come about? We find that in verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The way that we have this supernatural unity in the church is through the spirit baptism. But we have to pause right there because there's lots of teaching about what it means to have spirit baptism. And if we don't rightly understand what the Bible teaches about spirit baptism, then we're not going to rightly understand the rest of the verses in this passage and we will misunderstand the unity of the church. Fortunately for us, the key verse to understanding spirit baptism is this one, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. So let's consider for a moment spirit baptism. Who is the subject of spirit baptism? Who is being baptized? What does the verse say? He says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. He doesn't say some of us were baptized in the spirit. Some of you may be at a different time. He says, we were all baptized into one body. Spirit baptism is something experienced by every Christian. That's the only way that this could happen. It must have happened at the moment of salvation. So we look for when did this happen? He says we all were baptized. It's past tense. It's something that's already happened. And the only experience that all believers throughout all time have in common is that salvation experience. So just as you look back to the moment of your salvation and you understand the Bible teaches that when you trusted Christ as your Savior, at that moment, you were justified before God. That's not an ongoing process. That happened then and it ended then. You are justified before a righteous and holy God. At the same time when that happened, you were also baptized in the Spirit. You have all of the Holy Spirit indwelling you permanently, and that will never change. The Holy Spirit will never, no, never, no, never leave you nor forsake you. We were all baptized into one body. But what is the nature of this spirit baptism? Well, for that, we look at the word baptism. What does it mean? It means to immerse. It means to go under. We were all immersed into one body. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. When we... Have the ordinance of baptism. We picture through water what has happened spiritually. We have died to our old way of life. We have been submerged into Christ and we rise to walk in newness of life. And just as that water signifies what we have been baptized into, he's saying that is what the Spirit is. We have been submerged, immersed into the Holy Spirit. And it happened at the moment of your conversion. You don't have to wait and search for some tingly feeling. You don't have to wait for some ecstatic utterance. You already have the Holy Spirit in you the moment you trusted Christ as your Savior. Well, who did it? When we have the ordinance of baptism, we have an administrator. It's usually the pastor as the one who is taking the new believer and lowering them into the waters of baptism and rising them out of the waters. That's usually who the administrator is. Who administered this baptism? That's the one thing that's not crystal clear in this verse, but it is clear in the Gospels. When we look at the Gospels and we look at the ministry of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but the one who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who administers our baptism, our spirit baptism. At the moment that we trust Christ as our Savior, He baptizes us into the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit completely indwelling us. So what is the result of this spirit baptism? For we were all, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Because of spirit baptism, we are now all in one spiritual body, the church. That is the result of spirit baptism. It's critically important to to understand that. This is what it means to have spirit baptism. Every Christian has all of the Holy Spirit. You're permanently indwelled in the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would leave. He would come and go. But now, under the New Covenant, Christians who trust Christ, they have the Holy Spirit. And He will never, no never, no never, no never leave you nor forsake you. We are united into one body. And this brings about a supernatural unity. Look at what he said in the middle of that verse. For we in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Paul is acknowledging that this supernatural unity should not normally happen. It doesn't happen in the world. It only comes about by the power of God. You have the greatest differences here, both ethnically and socially, And these verses, you cannot have greater ethnic diversity than Jews or Greeks. No matter what we think about current ethnic strife, it will never reach the intensity that it was between Jews and Greeks. You couldn't get more polar opposite ethnically than Jews and Greeks. And yet through the power of God, Jews and Greeks were baptized into one body. You couldn't get more socially distanced. You couldn't get more socially opposite than the Jews, I mean, than the slaves and the free. You couldn't be more divided than someone who is a slave and someone who is free. And yet, in the body of Christ, through the power of God, both slaves and free were made to drink of one spirit. They were baptized into one body. There shouldn't be this unity within the church. It only comes about. By the power of God. It is not natural. The great diversity represented in the church should naturally lead to more division. And yet God has designed it this way that this brings about a unity. So Paul continues at the end of that verse. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Just in, in case the, the picture of baptism didn't work, he gives you the picture of drinking from a cup that we were all made to drink of one spirit. And just as when you drink from a cup of water and that water indwells inside of you, it is inside of you holy, and that's what it's like to drink of the Holy Spirit. We have been indwelled by the Spirit and he is permanently indwelling us. And this brings about a supernatural unity. Our identity in Christ brings about this unity. Once we trust Christ as our Savior, we're no longer known by any of the the former things that we were known. The first descriptor that comes after our name ought to be Christian, is that Christ brings about this unity. Paul finishes out this chapter by giving us an analogy to help us understand how important it is that if these major differences, being a Jew or a Greek or being a slave or a free... If those differences should not divide us, if we can be united in the midst of even those differences, then a difference in gifting should never divide the church. That's the problem that Paul is addressing here. that There were some people in Corinth who said, I don't have a particular gift that you have, so therefore I'm less important than you are, or maybe even I'm not really a part of the church. That was the error in thinking that Paul is addressing. And he says, no, if we can be united, both Jew and Greek, both slave and free, then nothing can divide us. We have a supernatural unity because of Christ. So he continues in verse 14 with this analogy. He says, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Now, If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. Paul gives us a very visual description, a very picturesque analogy, and it's almost silly. And he means for it to be silly because the idea that having a difference in gift, having a variety of gifts, having a diversity of gifts within the church should divide us. That's silly. And so he points that out here. He says, imagine that if your foot says... Well, because I'm not a hand, I just I don't think I'm going to be part of the body. Imagine if that happened. You may feel that way. You may wake up one morning and you feel like your foot's not working and your foot's rebelling and saying that it's not going to be part of the body. But imagine if a foot said, no, I, just, I don't feel as special because I'm not a hand. And so I'm just going to say, I'm, I'm going to check out. I'm not going to be part of the body. Do you hear the discontent in the church at Corinth? Do you hear the discontent that sometimes pops up in churches today. When people say, you know, God has given me this gift, but it's not really the one I want. I wish I was something else. And so I'm just not gonna participate. I'm just not gonna be part of the church. He continues in verse 16. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Paul gives you this very visual image. Imagine if an eyeball just came bouncing down the aisle of the church. It could see, but that's it. It couldn't touch, it couldn't taste, couldn't hear, it couldn't feel, it couldn't do anything. So it is with the body of Christ. We cannot divide ourselves in this way. He gives us this image that is grotesque and useless. It would be gross to see an eyeball bouncing around trying to be a body all by itself. It would be grotesque if you only had a severed foot and it was posing as an entire body. It would also be useless. It couldn't do anything separated from the body. Verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. The emphasis is on the fact that God has designed us just the way he wanted us to be. He has given us the gifts that he wants us to have. Sometimes those are enhancements of our natural abilities. Sometimes those are spiritual gifts that come upon us at the time of our salvation that can only be explained by the work of God. But as it is, God has done it. Verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Again, this is almost comical. And Paul means for it to be that way. Each of us could testify at different points of our life when one part of our body has failed. We would never say... I'll just live without it. If my knee stops working, I don't want to just hobble around for the rest of my life. I want to get it fixed. And the body is intricately connected. Just ask yourself the next time you stub your big toe, you feel it all over your body. The body is intricately connected. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now, all of this, Paul has been speaking about the physical body. He gives us this analogy because we understand it from our physical body. But so it is with the body of Christ, that we need one another, that we are all intricately connected to one another. And yet there are many churches today that are essentially eyeball church and foot church and the church of the ear. They're churches that are so focused on one specific demographic of their church that they alienate every other group. The children are over here, never to be seen. The youth are over here, never to be seen. The senior citizens are over here, never to be seen. And they're segregated off. And I want to be very clear, as long as I'm your pastor, that will not be at Ramah Baptist Church. We are one body and we need one another. Just as ludicrous as it would be for a toe to try to operate on its own or for an eye to pose as an entire body, it would be just as ludicrous for us to say, we really only need one age group or one gender or one ethnicity or one socioeconomic background or one occupational background. We need each other. Paul continues in verse 21. He says, the I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are, look at the end of verse 22, indispensable. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. What if the eye or the head... Where to get so arrogant, so cocky, because they're the the highly visible parts of the body. We look each other in the eye when we speak. Our heads are always exposed the great majority of our lives. If they were to say, well, you know, I think I've got it covered. If the eye said to the hand, you know, I really don't need you. Or if the head said to the foot, I have no need of you. That's ridiculous. That's self-mutilation. That's amputation. It doesn't work. On the contrary, the parts that we may not think about are actually indispensable. You may not think a whole lot about your kidneys until they fail you, and then you realize that they are indispensable. God has designed both the human body and the body of Christ in such a way that every part, every member is indispensable he continues in verse 23, And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. We have parts of our body that are so valuable, and yet so vulnerable that we have to keep them inside. If you tried to walk around carrying your liver in your hand, it wouldn't work. If you tuck your eyeballs out and you just carried them safely so that they would be protected, you wouldn't see. There are parts of our body, our human body that are so valuable. They must be protected inside our body. So it is with our brain. Our brain is critically important and yet the least little concussion, the least little bit of getting things out of whack and it could change your life forever just because it's vulnerable doesn't mean that it's not valuable and the parts of our body that require greater modesty we cover up and praise god for that but just because we may not see a particular part of our body we may not think about a particular part of our body doesn't mean that it's not necessary and so it is with the church of the risen lord we need one another. Apparently, in the church at Corinth, there were people who said, I just don't need you. I think I've got it under control. We don't need this person. They don't really contribute that much. Or We don't need that person because, honestly, they, they're so needy. They need us all the time. We have to help them all the time. Why do we need that person? We could spend our resources over here if we just didn't have that person dragging us down. There are churches that do that, but it must not be. We cannot say to anybody, I have no need of you. What is the result of all of this? Verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We need each other. It's very clear from the text of Scripture that as a church, we need one another. The diversity that occurs in the church, which would naturally lead to division, but no, it should lead to unity, Because God's diversity, God's giving of different gifts to different people is not a deficiency in God's plan. It is by God's design. We need one another. That's why the New Testament epistles address different groups of people. They address the older men and the younger men and the older women and the younger women. And the pastors and the deacons and the parents and the children and the masters and the slaves. And every conceivable group has instructions given to them in the New Testament because we're a body. We need one another. So what does this mean for us as a church? I'm keenly aware that even in the year 2021, things didn't magically change on New Year's Eve when the clock changed. We're still in the middle of something resembling a pandemic. We still have health concerns. We still need to be smart and safe and wise as we gather. But, We need to commit to being the body of Christ. We need to be together. Right now, we're gathering on Sunday mornings for Sunday school and the corporate worship service. As we mentioned last week, our first priority is most visible in our corporate worship service when we gather together. But for our second priority, our relationship with one another, we need to gather more than just that. We're gathering for Sunday school and some of you are part of Sunday school and some of you are not. And if you're not, why? I'm new here. You can tell me. You can tell me the reason you don't want to be a part of Sunday school. Just let me know. And there's some of us who aren't here today for various reasons, but we trust they will be back soon, that we will all be able to gather corporately. But soon, in the Lord's guiding and in his wisdom, we're going to gather together on Wednesday nights to pray. So I'm asking you now that whenever we do that, Would you commit, if at all possible, to being there? Because this is God's church and we're doing God's work and we cannot do it without praying to God. We need to pray together so that we can rejoice together and so that we can suffer together and so that we can be the body of Christ. As soon as the Lord allows, I would love for the men of the church to be able to gather to have men's gatherings, to be able to serve together so that the great diversity that God has given us here of age and experience and of background and of energy, that we can all get together and help one another and encourage one another and serve the body of Christ and the world. I long for the day that soon the women of the church will be able to gather together. They'll be able to encourage one another, to suffer together and to rejoice together and to be the body of Christ as women together. So would you commit that as these opportunities approach, as God and his wisdom gives us opportunity to gather, would you commit to being a part of this church? Now you may say, Pastor Charles, look, I've got it under control. I'm studying my Bible at home. I'm praying at home. I'm doing all these things at home. I'm coming on Sunday mornings, but really I've got it under control. I really really don't need y'all. Even if that were true, which I don't think it is. I don't think that you can be spiritually healthy apart from being involved with a local church. But even if that were true, we need you. We need everybody. Every member of this church is indispensable. So will you commit in this year to being together as the body of Christ? As an aside, that's why we have our children in the service. And that's why we invite other children into the service. Because even though as Lindsay and I have the primary responsibility of nurturing and guiding and training our children, and we take that responsibility very seriously, they need you. They need to hear you singing. They need to see you love Jesus. They need to see husbands loving their wives and wives loving their husbands. Their spiritual growth would be lacking apart from you. So just as children need to be around people who are not children, People who are no longer children also need to be around children. And so we need to be together as one body of Christ. Now, if you're here today and you feel a bit left out, you think, you know, none of this applies to me because, frankly, I'm not a part of Christ. If you recognize that, if you realize that you've never repented of your sins, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, then I pray that today would be the day of your salvation. But I recognize that this text is pointed primarily to us as believers, as Rhema Baptist Church. So each of us must respond to God's word. We must ask the Holy Spirit to show us how we can love one another better, how we can be a part of this church better. So we're going to have a moment of silence where we can all bow our hearts before God and pray and ask that God would show us how to better love one another. And after a moment of silence, I will pray for us, and then Justin will come and lead us in a hymn of response. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord.